the Book of Judges, a dark time in Israel's history, a pattern of failure, failure to follow God's law, failure to train up the next generation, failure to remember and celebrate God's faithfulness. We may be tempted to see the judges as heroes of the faith. However, the only hero of this story is God himself. The people of God chose the pleasures of sin over the promises of God. And the story of Judges is our story as well. In a desperately wicked and fallen world, the book of Judges reveals both the disgrace of sin and the deliverance only God can provide. My name is Philip Blazik, and I am the high school pastor here at Chino Valley Community Church. It is good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, go and open up to Judges. Chapter 10 is where we will be, verse 6. Judges chapter 10, verse 6. As we continue our series through the book of Judges, Disgrace and Deliverance. This morning, we're going to be going through quite a bit. Uh, so open up once again, Judges chapter 10, verse 6. If you have not noticed yet... The book of Judges is a tragedy. It is a downward spiral of sin. Of God moving in the lives of his people, yet the people rejecting and abandoning him. The book of Judges reminds me of Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And we see a lot of that in the book of Judges. We see a lot of sin uh, that leads to death. We see tons of that over and over and over again in the judgment cycle in the book of Judges. God's people abandoning God and turning towards sin. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And we see that as well. We see the grace of God. We see his redemption, his rescuing of his people when they're crying out to him. God doesn't just leave them in their sin, but he rescues them. He raises up a deliverer. That Hebrew word deliverer, yasah, is a, a Hebrew verb. It means to save. And so what God is doing is he is raising up a savior for his people to deliver them from the oppression they're in. We'll see both of that in the days of Jephthah, both destruction of sin and the saving power of God. Judges 10, verse 6 is where we will begin. Then the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshiped the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, Sidon, and Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines. They abandoned Yahweh and did not worship him. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to the Philistines and to the Ammonites. And they shattered and crushed the Israelites that year, and for 18 years they did the same to all the Israelites who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites and Gilead. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. Israel was greatly oppressed. So we see, once again, that verse 6 shouldn't catch us by surprise because, once again, the Israelites did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. The phrase has come up again and again and again in the book of Judges, but it's different here. It, it's different here in Judges 10 uh, because we see something else. 
There's a list of gods. It's not just they turned away from Yahweh and served Baal or, or served Ashtoreth poles and they raised them up and served those. It's not just one God, but there's a list of gods that they have now turned towards. And it's interesting because this list, there's, there's seven of them. There are seven different gods that are listed that the Israelites are now serving. And, and a while back, in the beginning of this series, Brian opened up and started talking about Deuteronomy uh, 7, where the, God called the Israelites, hey, when you're going into the promised land, the land that I promised to you, all the way back to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, I've, I've promised you this land, when you go into it, Get rid of all those nations in there so they don't become a snare to you. So you're not given over to the gods that they worship. Deuteronomy 7.1 uh, lists seven different nations that the Israelites are to drive out. And we read in the opening of Judges that they didn't drive all of them out. And then these nations did become a snare to Israel. These nations will turn you away. They will make you abandon me. This is what God says to the Israelites to not let these nations have a foothold on them. And if we too are not careful, we are led astray by sin. If we do not kill the sin in our own life, it will lead us away from God. They abandon God. They abandon worshiping him. And the Lord is not pleased. His anger burns against them. And so he raises up these two nations to take them captive. And so his anger burns against them, raises up these two nations. And most of the time we think that jealousy is a sin. We see in the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments, do not covet. But God is rightfully or righteously jealous for his people. And so that's why he gets burned with anger. That's why he's burning with anger because his people are not worshiping him. Think about it this way. If someone were to, if a guy were to come into my house, all right, walk through the front door and start flirting with my wife in front of me, oh, we're going to the octagon. That's not happening. You're not coming into my house under my roof and flirting with my wife in front of me. Same with wives. That won't go well either. If a woman comes in, starts flirting uh, with her husband, wife's not going to be okay with that. Why? Well, Kristen belongs to me and I belong to Kristen. And so in marriage, there's a righteous jealousy that we are to have for our spouse. And as God's people, we belong to him. He is our God who we worship. That is why you are here this morning or, or watching online. Where we're gathering to worship our great God and King because he's worthy of it. Because he has rescued us from our sin. But if we are not careful, we too can be led astray by sin. We too can abandon God and turn towards sin. And so we need to be watchful, be mindful as we are living out our lives, worshiping God. Possibly the most tragic part of this, the list of these gods they are serving, they're, they're all people, groups, who, who the Israelites have conquered over before. 
They've conquered these people once before, but they didn't completely drive them out. And so now these nations have built back up and have infiltrated and led the people of God away to serve their gods. We must never lose sight of the battle against sin. Sin does not sleep. The sinful nature we are born with is always attacking. We must be on guard or we too will find ourselves just like the Israelites, abandoning God and turning towards our idols. John Owen in his book, The Mortification of Sin, said, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so the sin in our life we must fight against. We must battle against day after day after day or we too will be consumed and led astray. So we need to fight. And it's not so that the fight, here's what the fight looks like. It, it's, going, uh, it's fighting against sin, and, and we're killing the sin in our lives. And now that we're rooting out the sin in our lives, we're rep- replacing it with holiness. It's, repentance isn't just not doing sin. When we repent from sin, we're turning towards God, towards his holiness. And so we're replacing the sin in our lives with holiness or with godliness. And so it's replacing anger with patience. It's replacing revenge with forgiveness. It's replacing bitterness with mercy. We must fight against sin in our life day after day after day. And when we taste and see that the Lord is good, when we taste and see that his commands are good, I mean, that's when we fill our lives with holiness. That's when we fill our lives with godliness. I tend to think most Christians, having this understanding that we have to battle every single day of our lives against sin, begin to grow weary or or feel burdened by that. Every single day I have to fight against sin in my life. But when you replace it with holiness, with godliness, I mean, that's where you get the desire, the drive, the passion of the Spirit to not grow weary against battling sin. But actually saying, all right, today is the day. It's the day's Lord. As a, as a believer, as a child of God, I can fight against sin. And I can, I can be joyful about it, not afraid of it. You'll find yourself living for the kingdom of God, filling our lives with holiness, filling our lives with godliness, and not the kingdom of this world. So looking back at the Israelites, once again, we see a difference in, the, in Judges 10 compared to before. Rather than just one nation ruling over the Israelites, you now have two. Normally God would just send in one nation uh, to take captive the Israelites. Now we have two nations. The Ammonites and the Philistines. And we'll look this morning at the Ammonites. And then with Samson later on, the Philistines. So once again, there's a highlight here that the Israelites have gone deeper into sin. They are serving more gods than before. They've abandoned Yahweh and his worship. And God now has raised two nations to take captive the Israelites. And they shatter and crush the Israelites for the next 18 years. And they did the same thing to the Israelites on the other side of the Jordan. Now, this is going to be important. The the, the other side of the Jordan, we're going to see it in chapters 10, 11, and 12. The other side of the Jordan, there's three nations that split the land. You have half the tribe of Manasseh, which is East Manasseh. And then you also have Gad and the Reubenites. 
So half of Manasseh, Gad, and the Reubenites on the east side of the Jordan. And that's going to be important later on as we continue to look at the life of Jephthah. Here's Israel's response to the repression, to the oppression they were suffering. Verse 10 says this. So they cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you. We have abandoned our God and worshiped the Baals. The Lord said to the Israelites, when the Egyptians, Ammonites, Amorites, Philistines, Sidians, Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you, you cried out to me. Did I not deliver you from their power? But you have abandoned me and worshiped other gods. Therefore, I will not deliver you again. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your oppression. But the Israelites said, we have sinned. We have sinned. Deal with us as you see fit. Only deliver us today. So they got rid of the foreign gods among them and worshiped the Lord. And he became weary of Israel's misery. So we have seen this before, the judgment cycle where the Israelites are serving God and then they give in to apostasy, idolatry, and, and then God sends them into captivity, raises up some nation to take them in, take over them, and then they cry out and then God raises up a judge, a deliverer, a savior. And here we see it again. But this time, something else is different compared to the previous seven times this has happened. Before they've cried out, and God raises up a deliverer, hears them, this time he says, not, not anymore. It's the boy who cried wolf. Have I not already done this again and again and again with you? Have I not already redeemed you, but you, my people, continue to abandon me, sin against me, and offer your worship somewhere else? God is not having it anymore. It's interesting here, the Hebrew could even be translated with satire as they will save you. Like God is saying to his people, like go and serve them. Yeah, they'll save you. God's not having it anymore with his people. The Israelites respond with what seemed like a half-hearted cry of repentance. We have sinned against you. Deal with us rightfully as you see fit, but deliver us. Reminds me of a child that goes before their parents caught in sin. They know what they did was wrong. They know they're caught, and they go before their parents. Hey, hey, mom, hey, dad, I know I've done what is wrong, and I know I shouldn't have, and I know you can punish me, but please don't. This is the Israelites. Hey, we've sinned against you, and do what you see fit, but please let it be deliverance and not punishment. And so God is destroying that false image we make of him. When we become the boy who cried woof, we go back to our sin and cry out. We go back to our sin and, and cry out. We'll say, it'll be different this time. It'll, it'll be different this time. I won't turn from you. And we end up in the mess of sin again and again. And so here it is in verse 14 that God wants to correct that understanding of him. He hates sin. He hates it, and he is holy. He is set apart from it, and he wants his people to know that it is not okay. It is not just, oh, I messed up. I think often we say that in our Christian life when we rebel against God, when we sin against God, we say, oh, well, I just messed up, and we soften this understanding of sin. 
for the wages of sin is death. It is damaging. It is destructive. Sin is powerful. It destroys. It has separated us from God. And God wants us to know that sin is damaging. Verse 16 is a bit interesting. I want to focus on it or we'll miss something important. Once again, verse 16 says this. So they got rid of the foreign gods among them and worshiped the Lord. And he became weary of Israel's misery. When we read that for the first time like I did before, you might think God relented because his people repented. God relented from sending more judgment because his people repented. We think in our own lives that we are falling into sin, that to get right with God, we need to repent from our sin. Yes, repent, repent, repent. But we can't force God to do anything. God does not operate on our repentance. And I think often in this verse and other verses in Scripture, we, we look at verses like these, and we think, well, if I sin and mess up, then in order to get into God's good graces, I just need to do what is right, and he'll love me again. He'll be grateful with me again. He'll bless me again. It's not how God operates. That if I repent, God then owes me to bless me, to save me from the mess I am in. God's deliverance of the mess we get ourselves into the sinfulness, that, the sinfulness that Israel was in. God delivered them because of his compassion on them. It was his compassion. It is who God is, is the way or the reason that God acts. It is his compassion to save Israel. He sees the misery of his people. It's like Jesus. When Jesus was on earth, he had compassion on the people because they were a flock without a shepherd. He saw the misery of his people. That is what he acts upon. His own character, his own goodness. And so for wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is because of Christ's compassion and goodness and grace and mercy that he sent Jesus to die for us. It says, if God cannot stand the misery of his people, even sinful and broken as we are, nothing about us worth saving, but out of his grace for his people, God moves and intervenes and sent his son to die for us. When you get rid of the idols in our lives, we need to repent from our sin, but know this. God saves his people because of who he is, a gracious and compassionate God, abounding in steadfast love. And that moves us to repentance. The, the grace of God moves us to repent, to turn away from sin. When we experience the grace and mercy of God in our own lives, that moves us to turn away from sin. You cannot fool God by pleading brokenness when it's actually rebellion. We see here the Israelites once again pleading before the Lord, revealing their brokenness, turning towards him, and God pursues them because of his compassion. Because of God's compassion for his people, he decides to raise up a judge, a savior for Israel. So here we go. Here's where our judge then comes on scene. Hear the intro about Jephthah. Judges 11 
verses 1 through 3. Jephthah the Gileadite was a great warrior. So far, so good. But he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when they grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You will have no inheritance in our father's house, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Then some lawless men joined Jephthah and traveled with him. Oh, what a way to be introduced in the Bible. Here, here's, here's your judge. Here, here's your deliverer. Son of a prostitute. Kicked out of his family. No inheritance. Oh, and by the way, now he just has a bunch of thugs as friends. This is the judge. This is Jephthah. Now, he's a great warrior, which will come into play. But he is completely kicked out, completely despised by his own people. And that's who we have. That's who, that's who God uses. Now, we announced a while ago that I'm looking for a lead pastor position. And in any position or any job application you have, you give your resume or a cover letter. I can tell you what's not going to be on my cover letter. All the terrible things about me. All right, I'm not my weaknesses. I'm going to put my strengths. Uh, I'm going to try and make myself look good. But what do we have here? Son of a prostitute. Kicked out by his family. No inheritance. Thugs as friends. The one that men rejected, Jephthah. The worst, talking about the worst of people is the one who God chooses. Now remember, Scripture is filled Scripture is filled with God using the least expected or the runt of the litter. These are the ones that God uses so that we, when we read these stories, we can know that it is God who delivers his people. Now, it's the spirit of God who uses the weak. It is the spirit of God who uses the runt of the litter so that we may know it is God and his power alone. Now, Brian loves to give me three chapters, it seems like, on Sundays to preach on. So we're going to go through pretty quickly through verses 4 through 28. I'm just going to summarize it. If you want on your own time, please do read through Judges 11, 4 through 28. Here's what happens in verses 4 through 11. The Gileadites eat some humble pie. They come back to Jephthah and say, hey, we need a warrior. We need someone to fight on our behalf. And so they actually go back to Jephthah, and there's a short conversation back and forth. And Jephthah says, all right, look, I'll go before you. If the Lord is before me, I will go before you and lead the people of Israel. And then what happens next is you have a political conversation between two people, Jephthah, the mighty warrior, and the king of Ammon, the Ammonites. And they argue back and forth. And so maybe you don't want to go back because we see that all day uh, on the news, political people arguing back and forth. And that's all you have here uh, in, the, in the middle of Judges 11. Not much has changed over 3,000 years. Two politicians back and forth presenting their facts to the side of the story. It's kind of an interesting conversation between Jephthah and the king. Uh, they're arguing back and forth. They're saying, look, this is our land. So the king of Ammon, he's like, hey, this is our land. You took it away from him. Jephthah's like, no, this is our land. You took it away from us. And they go back and forth presenting their facts. Neither of them listening to one another. So in the end, they agree not to agree to disagree. They just both think that each other is wrong, that they are right. Once again, not much has changed in 3,000 years. Jephthah and the king of Ammon go back and forth. And so at the very end of it, 
Jephthah, or the king of Ammon, uh, says in verse 28, but the king of Ammon would not listen to Jephthah's message that he sent them. Jephthah gives a history lesson in verses 14 to 20 on why the land rightfully belonged to the Israelites. And then he adds a theology lesson in verse 21 about the power of God. So that's good. But then in verses 22 to 28 with some aggression, he, he continues to tell king of Ammon why the land is theirs. And he most likely elaborated on some, a couple historical and minor theological points about the God of the Ammonites. I like how one commentator put it. He said, Jephthah is either engaging in propaganda for the purpose of his own or is simply incorrect. Since this is a political speech, Jephthah crafts his comments deliberately for propaganda purposes rather than factual reconstruction. And so Jephthah is going back and forth and, and just laying out all of what he sees as factual evidence for the land being theirs, but the king of Ammon is having nothing to do with it. King does not want to hear from Jephthah or his propaganda anymore. So here comes the war. We're going to pick it back up then in verse 29. Judges 11, 29 says this. The spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh and they went through Mitzpah of Gilead. He crossed over to the Ammonites from Mitzpah of Gilead. Jephthah made this vow to the Lord. If you will hand over the Ammonites to me, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to greet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, will belong to the Lord. And I will offer it as a burnt offering. Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord handed them over to him. He, de he defeated 20 of their cities with a great slaughter from Aurora all the way to the entrance of Mineth and to Abel Kermim. So the Ammonites were subdued before Jephthah, or before the Israelites. So just like before in the book of Judges, the author reveals to us the spirit of the Lord has come. He, ha he has come upon the judge, and the judge just wipes out the enemy. Nothing being able to stand up against the power of God. And he wipes out the enemies. The sin of Israel was great. They, they rejected, abandoned Yahweh. The God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the sin was great. They committed great apostasy because of the Lord's compassion on his people. The victory was great. I said before that the geography would be of importance. And so once again, we see it. We're going to see it again in chapter 12. But we see, here we go, the Jordan River. You have three tribes on the east side, half of Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. And Gilead was in the region of Gad. And so Jephthah had to cross over the Jordan. He had to go through some land, primarily the uh, land of Ephraim. He had to go through the land, cross over the Jordan to fight against them. So he crosses over. And has a great victory. But the author doesn't give full focus to the battle. He clues us in to something else. The victory was great. But he also lets us know about a vow that Jephthah makes. Whatever comes out of my house, I will give as a burnt offering to the Lord. And so here you have Jephthah. Fresh off of the battle. Fresh off of victory walking home in good spirits most likely because the Lord has just delivered with a great win. 
the enemies of God. And so here he comes, walking up to his house. Verse 34. When Jephthah went to his home in Mitzpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He had no other son or daughter besides her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, No, not my daughter. You have devastated me. You have brought great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. Then she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said. For the Lord brought vengeance on your enemies, the Anamites. She also said to her father, let me do this one thing. Let me wander two months through the mountains with my friends and mourn my virginity. Walking home from a great victory, coming up to his house. And the first thing that comes out is his daughter. And he tears his clothes in an act of remembrance of the vow he made as an act of mourning over what he has to do. So here comes the controversy over Jephthah. The Hebrew is interesting. As most English Bibles translate the Hebrew word asur, back in verse 31 when Jephthah makes the, the vow, the relative pronoun as whatever. Now it could be who, what, or is, or, or that, sorry. The HCSB, that's what I'm preaching out of. The NIV, King James Version, New King James Version. ESV, NASB, and for those who use the NLT or the message, all translate a sir as whatever. So whatever comes out of my house. The CSB, Christian Standard Bible, stands alone and translate it as whoever, not whatever. It's very interesting here. Such a rash vow I mean, even regardless of the translation, whatever or whoever, this is a foolish, unnecessary vow to make. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Now, Jephthah may have been thinking, some people will say, maybe he was thinking that it was an animal that would be the first thing to greet him, like a dog or something. Regardless, there's still a sacrifice, a burnt offering to be made, and there is no need to make this vow. The spirit of the Lord was upon him. He had already basically been given victory. Such a rash, foolish, stupid vow that Jephthah made. No reason to make it. How foolish we become when we make similar vows and swear oaths that we will give everything to God. But when sin comes knocking... And it will. We make the dumbest decisions. I'll never drink again. I'll never look at anything on the internet again. I'll never yell at my family again. Yet to sin, we run. And there's no reason to turn to sin. Sin never offers holiness. Sin promises things. It does. But it dresses up those promises. And then we give in to sin. There's ugliness there. There's damage. There's destruction such a foolish and rash vow that Jephthah made. But I think we find ourselves as, uh, there as well. Saying, God, I'll never do this again. I swear to you, you have my life. Do what you want with my life. I swear it's yours. And then when sin comes in front of us, what do we do? Sometimes we just hide. We cower. 
We don't fight. We give in. The stupidity in this vow. Now, the mourning of her virginity, Jephthah's daughter, just to be clear, she's not mourning because she's a virgin and never had sex. It's because her family line would no longer continue. Why would it no longer continue? Because of the vow that Jephthah made. And so she asked her father, hey, just give me these these couple of months. Let me go with my friends. Let me mourn for the line of Jephthah ends here. Now, how do we know that he followed through on this vow? Well, look at what happens next. Verses 38 to 40 say this. Go, he said. And he sent her away two months. So she left her friends and mourned her virginity as she wandered through the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, and he kept the vow he made about her. And she had never been intimate with a man Now it became a custom in Israel that four days each year the young woman of Israel would commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. The author is clear about the tragedy of Jephthah and his daughter and how how the mighty can fall, swearing to defend, but falling in the end. That's Jephthah. Remember back to the political argument when Jephthah and the king were debating about whose land it was. One of the theological heirs that Jephthah most likely made back in the argument was he said that the the god of the Ammonites was Chemosh. Now, if you don't know your your 10th century B.C. gods, uh, just to let you know, Chemosh was primarily the god of Moab. The god of the Ammonites, one of the god of the Ammonites was Molech. And, And so here you have Jephthah raised up by God, to deliver, to save the people of God from this wicked nation who served Molech. How did they serve Molech? Child sacrifice. So you have Jephthah going to deliver the people of God from the wickedness of these people only becoming like them. If we are not careful in our own lives... And sin is destructive. It's powerful. We must fight sin in our lives. We must replace that with holiness, with godliness. The the, the Spirit of God would move inside us. The author is clear about the tragedy of this story. So if you've been with us, you know that it doesn't always get better as the story continues. Here's how the story ends. The days of Jephthah, chapter 12, verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called together and crossed the Jordan to Zaphon. They said to Jephthah, why have you crossed over to fight against the Ammonites? But you didn't call us to go with you. We will burn your house down with you in it. Then Jephthah said to them, my people, and I had a serious conflict with the Ammonites, so I called for you, but when you didn't deliver me from their power, I saw, when I saw that you weren't going to deliver me, I took my life in my own hands and crossed over to the Ammonites, and the Lord handed them over to me. Why have you come out today to fight against me? All right, so here's the geography. Once again, you have the Jordan River. On the west side of the Jordan, you have the tribe of Ephraim, and the Ammonites crossed over there. 
And they took over some of them as, long as, as well as the tribe of Benjamin. And then on the, the east side of the Jordan, you have half of Manasseh, you have Gad, that's where Gilead is, and you have the Reubenites. And so Jephthah crosses over and he passes through the uh, Ephraim. And the Ephraimites are like, hey, we're all big and bad. We wanted to fight with you. This is the second time now. This happened with Gideon as well. The Ephraimites went to Gideon and said, why didn't you, help, why didn't you use us in war? But these are some prideful people of God here, always wanting to go to war, thinking that they're the best of the best. Jephthah, at this point in his life, is not someone who I want to mess with. Just the emotions that he is going through right now, coming off of a victory, going in war, sacrificing his daughter, and then being threatened. We're going to burn your house down. By the way, you're going to be incited while we do it. And so Jephthah's like, why are you coming against me? I did go to you. Once again, the author doesn't clue us into who is wrong and, and who is right here. But we do see the Israelites, same family, same nation, fighting against each other over something foolish. The Lord, the Lord gave them victory. I mean, there is to be praise and worship given over to God, but the Ephraimites are trying to steal some of that glory Wanting it for themselves. How often we fight among ourselves as glory thieves. God's doing a great work in someone else. We get envious. We begin to covet what God is doing in, uh, in their life rather than praising God for the redemption in that person's life. Verses 4 through 7. When then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead, they fought and defeated Ephraim because Ephraim had said, you Gileadites are Ephraimite fugitives in the territories of Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. Whenever a fugitive from Ephraim said, let me cross over, the Gileadites asked him, are you an Ephraimite? If he answered no, they told him, please say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, notice the difference, because he could not pronounce it correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 from Ephraim died. Jephthah judged Israel six years, and when he died, he was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. There's the days of Jephthah. Just a downward spiral of sin. We usually refer to it as the judgment cycle. I was reading one commentator. And he says it's no longer a judgment cycle at this point. It's a cycle plunging themselves into sin. And so at the very end of Jephthah's life, he kills his own people. And it's over a word, shibboleth, which means an ear of corn. And the Ephraimites couldn't pronounce it correctly. Uh, and so just to think about it this way, it would be basically like the West Coast versus the East Coast over how you pronounce quarter. It's quarter, not quada. All right. That's my Eastern accent for you guys. Uh, so that's how it's pronounced, quarter. Uh, but if they mispronounce it, they're dead. Like that's the end of your life right there. And they killed 42,000. What a tragedy. A downward spiral of sin. I want to close with three application reminders. A few things that I mentioned in my sermon, but I just want to recap for us before we close. The first one is this. Kill sin 
or it will be killing you. The Israelites over and over and over again gave in to sin. The judgment cycle becomes no longer a cycle, but a plunge into sin. And it only gets worse, by the way. If you've never read through the book of Judges, it doesn't end well. It ends terribly. You might think what's worse, we'll just wait till we get to Samson. So when we look at our own lives, we are called to repent. But remember, God does not love you based off of your good works. God did not send Jesus to die for our sins because of how great and awesome we are. The Son of God took on flesh because we failed to repent. It was out of his compassion that God sent his one and only Son. And because of the grace we have received, it changes and transforms us. As the people of God, difference makers in this world, shining as a light to this dark world, repenting from our sins, not living according to this world, according to the kingdom of this world, but according to the kingdom of God. We have the spirit of God living inside us. We don't need to make any special oaths, any special vows before the Lord. You have the Spirit of God, the one who is in the beginning, hovering over the waters of the deep, creator of all things, living inside you as a believer. You have the power to fight against sin. Don't believe in the lies. You either tell yourself or you hear from the world. Spirit of God is mighty, and he moves in the lives of his people to fight against sin. The second one is this, the one that men rejected. Second application point. The son, remember who Jephthah was, the son of a prostitute rejected by his brothers. Well, there was another one who was rejected. But not just by his brothers, but by his own family, by his disciples, by the world. Jesus Christ. Rejected and despised. Isaiah 53 speaks about this. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A, a man of sorrows. This is Jesus Christ that Isaiah is speaking about. This is who God uses, the Son of God, to redeem his people. The one that men reject is typically the one who God uses. Don't ever think you're too broken that God cannot work in your life. It's just simply not true. As a believer of God, you have the spirit of God living inside you. God can, God does, God will work in your life. Follow after him. Follow after him. The last one is this, the sacrifice of Jesus. Some people see the sacrifice of Jesus as the same wickedness of God the Father to sacrifice his own son, the same wickedness as Jephthah offering his daughter as a burnt offering. The Bible never records anything in this story that in any way this is honoring towards God. 
Normally, when you have a sacrifice given towards God, there's a phrase sometimes that's accompanied by it, and it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We don't see that anywhere in this story in the book of Jephthah. A terrible act. We don't see that with Jephthah, but, when, but then why is it okay for God to sacrifice his one and only son, but not for Jephthah, for his daughter? I think the answer goes beyond, well, he's God, so he can. That is true. I sent this to my friend, and I asked him his thoughts, and he said this to me. The triune God who made a decision to freely sacrifice the second member of the Trinity in accordance of his own will and love, Jephthah disobeyed the divine command of God to murder someone made in the image of God, especially when there are provisions in the Mosaical law on how to get out of such a rash vow. He offered him freely, and Jesus went freely for my sin and for yours. Praise be to God our Father who sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Do you have everlasting life? Have you made that decision in your life, confessed that you cannot save yourself? That is by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus, that we have eternal life. And if you have me, that says you're my brother or sister in Christ, amen, praise be to God. Let us fight against sin. Let us fight together. If you have not made that decision before, I want to ask you, speak to the person that either brought you. There's going to be people under these crosses. I'll be up front. Please talk to someone if you've never made that decision before and want to know more about what Jesus Christ did for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, your matchless and holy throne. You alone are God, and there is none like you. And because of your grace and mercy upon us, you sent your one and only Son freely, and he went freely to die for the forgiveness of sins. I pray for those who have accepted that in their life, that know you as God the Father, that the Spirit of God would move mightily in his people. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning that don't know you, that the Spirit would start moving in them just to ask questions, to seek you out. For you have redeemed us, saved us. We thank you and praise you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.